Book 1, Chapter 11 of Off on a Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kev S. Off on a Comet by Jules Verne. Translated by Anonymous. Book 1, Chapter 11. An Island Tomb. No longer, then, could there be any doubt as to the annihilation of a considerable portion of the colony. Not merely had there been a submersion of the land, but the impression was more and more confirmed. Not only merely had there been a submersion of the land, but the impression was more and more confirmed that the very bowels of the earth must have yawned and closed again upon a large territory. Of the rocky substratum of the province, it became more evident than ever that not a trace remained, and a new soil of unknown formation had certainly taken the place of the old sandy sea bottom, as it altogether transcended the powers of those on board to elucidate the origin of this catastrophe. It was felt to be incumbent on them at least to ascertain its extent. After a long and somewhat wavering discussion, it was at length decided that the schooner would take advantage of the favourable wind and weather, and proceed at first towards the east thus following the outline of what had formerly represented the coast of Africa, until that coast had been lost in boundless sea. Not a vestige of it all remained, from Cape Matafuz to Tunis it had all gone, as though it had never been. The maritime town of Delis, built like Algiers, amphitheatre-wise, had totally disappeared. The highest points were quite invisible. Not a trace on the horizon was left of the Jejura train, the topmost point of which was known to have an altitude of more than 7,000 feet. Unsparing of her fuel, the Debrenia made her way up full steam towards Cape Blanc. Neither Cape Negro nor Cape Serrat was to be seen. The town of Bizerta, once charming in its oriental beauty, had vanished utterly. Its marabouts or temple tombs shaded by magnificent palms that fringed the gulf which by reason of its narrow mouth had the semblance of a lake, all had disappeared, giving place to a vast waste of sea, the transparent waves of which, as still demonstrated by the sounding line, had ever the same uniform and arid bottom. In the course of the day, the schooner rounded the point where five weeks previously Cape Blanc had been so conspicuous an object, and she was now steaming the waters of what had once been the Bay of Tunis. But bay there was none, and the town from which it had derived its name, with the arsenal, the galetta, and the two peaks of Boconin, had all vanished from the view. Cape Bontu, the most northern promontory of Africa, and the point of the continent nearest to the islands of Sicily, had been included in the general devastation. Before the occurrence of the recent prodigy, the bottom of the Mediterranean, just at this point, had formed a sudden ridge across the Straits of Libya. The sides of the ridge had shelved to so great an extent that while the depth of the water on the summit had been little more than eleven fathoms, that on either hand of the elevation was little short of a hundred fathoms. A formation such as this plainly indicated that at some remote epoch Cape Bon had been connected with Cape Furinia, the extremity of Sicily, in the same manner as Cueta has doubtless been connected with Gibraltar. Lieutenant Procope was too well acquainted with the Mediterranean to be unaware of this peculiarity, and would not lose the opportunity of ascertaining whether the submarine ridge still existed, or whether the sea bottom between Sicily and Africa had undergone any modification. 
both Timoshev and Servadak were much interested in watching the operations. At a sign from the lieutenant, a sailor who was stationed at the foot of the fore shrouds dropped the sounding lid into the water, and in reply to Procope's inquiries reported, Five fathoms and a flat bottom. The next aim was to determine the amount of depression on either side of the ridge, and for this purpose the Debrenia was shifted for a distance of half a mile both to the right and left, and the soundings taken at each station. Five fathoms and a flat bottom was the unvaried announcement after each operation. Not only, therefore, was it evident that the submerged chain between Cape Bon and Cape Farina no longer existed, but it was equally clear that the convulsion had caused a general levelling of the sea bottom, and that the soil degenerated, as it has been said, into a metallic dust of unrecognised composition, bore no trace of the sponges, sea anemones, starfish, sea nettles, hydrophytes and shells with which the submarine rocks of the Mediterranean had hitherto been prodigiously clothed. The Debrenia now put about and resumed her explorations in a southerly direction. It remained, however, as remarkable as ever how completely throughout the voyage the sea continued to be deserted. All expectations of hailing a vessel bearing news from Europe were entirely falsified, so that more and more each member of the crew began to be conscious of his isolation, and to believe that the schooner, like a second Noah's Ark, carried the sole survivors of a calamity that had overwhelmed the earth. On the 9th of February, the Debrania passed over the site of the city of Dido, the ancient Birsa of Carthage, however, which was now more completely destroyed than ever Punic Carthage had been destroyed by Scipio Africanus or Roman Carthage by Hassan the Saracen. In the evening, as the sun was sinking below the eastern horizon, Captain Servadac was lounging moodily against the taffrail. From the heaven above, where stars kept peeping fitfully from behind the moving clouds, his eye wandered mechanically to the waters below, where the long waves were rising and falling with the evening breeze. All at once his attention was arrested by a luminous speck straight ahead on the southern horizon. At first, imagining that he was the victim of some spectral illusion, he observed it with silent attention. But when, after some minutes, he became convinced that what he saw was actually a distant light, he appealed to one of the sailors by whom his impression was fully corroborated. The intelligence was immediately imparted to Count Timoshev and the lieutenant. Is it land, do you suppose? invited Servadac eagerly. I should be more inclined to think it is a light upon board some ship, replied the Count. Whatever it is, in another hour we shall know all about it, said Servadac. No, Captain, interposed Lieutenant Procope, we shall know nothing until tomorrow. What? Not bear down upon it at once? asked the Count in surprise. No, sir, I should much rather lay to and wait till daylight. If we are really near land, I should be afraid to approach it in the dark. The Count expressed his approval of the Lieutenant's caution, and thereupon all sail was shortened so as to keep the Debrenia from making any considerable progress all through the hours of the night. Few as those hours were, they seemed to those on board as if their end would never come. Fearful lest the faint glimmer should at any moment cease to be visible, Hector Servadac did not quit his post upon the deck, but the light continued unchanged. It shone with about the same degree of lustre as a star of the second magnitude, and from the fact of its remaining stationary, Procope became more and more convinced that it was on land and did not belong to a passing vessel. 
At sunrise, every telescope was pointed with keenest interest towards the centre of attraction. The light, of course, had ceased to be visible, but in the direction where it had been seen, and at a distance of about ten miles, there was the distinct outline of a solitary island of very small extent. Rather, as the Count observed, it had the appearance of being the projecting summit of a mountain all but submerged. Whatever it was, it was agreed that its true character must be ascertained, not only to gratify their own curiosity, but for the benefit of all future navigators. The schooner accordingly was steered directly towards it, and in less than an hour had cast anchor within a few cables' length of the shore. The little island proved to be nothing more than an arid rock rising abruptly about 40 feet above the water. It had no outlying reefs, a circumstance that seemed to suggest the probability that in the recent convulsion it had sunk gradually until it had reached its present position of equilibrium. Without removing his eye from his telescope, Servadac exclaimed, There is a habitation on the place. I can see an erection of some kind quite distinctly. Who can tell whether we shall not come across a human being? Lieutenant Procope looked doubtful. The island had all the appearance of being deserted, nor did a cannon shot fired from the schooner have the effect of bringing any resident to the shore. Nevertheless, it was undeniable that there was a stone building situated on the top of the rock, and that this building had much the character of an Arabian mosque. The boat was lowered and manned by the four sailors. Servadac, Timoshev and Procope were quickly rowed ashore and lost no time in commencing their ascent of the steep acclivity. Upon reaching the summit, they found their progress arrested by a kind of wall, or rampart of singular construction, its materials consisting mainly of vases, fragments of columns, carved bas-reliefs, statues and portions of broken stelae, all piled promiscuously together without any pretense to artistic arrangement. They made their way into the enclosure, and finding an open door, they passed through and soon came to a second door, also open, which admitted them to the interior of the mosque, consisting of a single chamber, the walls of which were ornamented in the Arabian style by sculpture of indifferent execution. In the centre was a tomb of the very simplest kind, and above the tomb was suspended a large silver lamp with a capacious reservoir of oil, in which floated a long-lighted wick the flame of which was evidently the light that had attracted Servadac's attention on the previous night. Must there not have been a custodian of the shrine, they mutually asked. But if such there had ever been, he must, they concluded, either have fled or have perished on that eventful night. Not a soul was there in charge, and the sole living occupants were a flock of wild cormorants, which startled at the entrance of the intruders, rose on wing and took a rapid flight towards the south. An old French prayer book was lying on the corner of the tomb. The volume was open, and the page exposed to view was that which contained the office for the celebration of the 25th of August. A sudden revelation dashed across Servadac's mind. The solemn isolation of the island tomb, the open breviary, the ritual of the ancient anniversary, all combined to appraise him of the sanctity of the spot upon which he stood. The tomb of St. Louis, he exclaimed, and his companions involuntarily followed his example and made a reverential obeisance to the venerated monument. It was, in truth, the very spot on which tradition asserts that the canonised monarch came to die, a spot to which for six centuries and more his countrymen had paid the homage of pious regard. 
The lamp that had been kindled at the memorial shrine of a saint was now all in probability the only beacon that threw a light across the waters of the Mediterranean, and even this ere long must itself expire. There was nothing more to explore. The three together quitted the mosque and descended the rock to the shore, whence their boat reconvened them to the schooner, which was soon again on a southward voyage and it was not long before the tomb of St. Louis, the only spot that had survived the mysterious shock, was lost to view. End of Book 1 Chapter 1 Recording by Kev S.